Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is, fri- <clears throat> Today is Friday, October 7, 2011, and I have a great show for you. Instead of the typical Friday show, because I am away, I'm in Salt Lake City right now, hopefully talking to some of you guys in the booth while other listeners are listening to today's show. But while I'm gone, I I like to bring in interviews. I think they make good shows while I'm away. And uh, today I have one of my favorite guests of all time back again, Frank Sharp Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants. We have a lot of stuff to talk about today. We're going to talk about coming civil unrest, some of the things that we see possibly stemming from something like Occupy Wall Street or similar events that we figure will happen in the future, the roles of rifles and shotguns for home defense, uh, organizing community, being prepared. I had Carl Denninger on earlier this week, and when I asked him what people could do, you know, he had great financial insights, but he didn't have a lot of great answers as to what people can do. So uh, he's a financial guy. He's a, tr- he's a trader, and I mean that in a good way. He's a stock and commodities trader, not a trader like trader. He's actually a very big patriot, so I don't want him to take that name the wrong way, but that's what he is. He's a financial analyst, technology guy, and commodities trader. Today we're bringing on someone that specializes in defense and organization and, you know, runs Fortress Defense Consultant. So he's going to talk to us about that. Before we bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. i got some important stuff today besides the normal stuff, so don't skip it. Uh, first of all, though, let's take care of our sponsors. First sponsor today is ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said a shelf, like you put stuff on, not self, like you yourself. That's because Shelf Reliance specializes in innovative food storage solutions, allowing you to eat what you store and store what you eat with great big giant systems that can hold a half a ton of food down to little bitty systems that can fit into your pantry or your cupboard. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. And out of all the different long-term storage foods I've tried, Thrive is the best tasting food. It's the stuff I would most want to eat day to day, even if they're wanting a disaster. So I think it makes a lot of sense for your long-term storage needs. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Shocking as it might be, you're going to get Berkey Water Filtration Systems, and you'll find Jeff at Directive21.com. Water is one of the most important survival needs we can possibly have. It's it's more important even than food. Uh, you can go a hell of a lot longer without food than you can go without water, so you need a way to make sure you can make water drinkable in less than ideal solutions. The best way I know to do that, and most cost-effective way I know to do that, is a Berkey Water Filtration System. Also, on a day-to-day basis, there are things in my water that I don't want there. Actually, I don't have anything in my water at the house anymore because now I'm on a well and I've got great quality water. But here at the office, we still have you know grid water. So we have fluoride and chlorine and other things like that in our water. Well, Berkey is a great way to get that stuff out of there. So for good times and bad, consider a Berkey water filtration system for your homestead, for your house, for your prepping, for all of the above. It's a great system, extremely cost-effective, and hey, it looks beautiful too. And Jeff has other great stuff, so check him out at Directive21.com. Remember, connect with me Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I will try to Facebook and do some tweeting while I'm in Salt Lake. It's amazing how busy you get at these events, but I'll try to do some of that stuff. Check out the forum. Check out the gear shop. Uh, here's the announcement. Member Support Brigade. A reminder, I'm running a sale while I'm away. If I'm going to give it to the people at the sale, I'm going to give it to the regular audience. Uh, new customers only here, or if you're renewing by mail, if you pay by mail, you can renew with this. But people that pay online, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm not like AT&T with this or something. You know, new customers only. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's logistically impossible to do, uh, an extension. If I could, I would. Uh, but I'll tell you what, right now, if you're not a member support brigade member, you've been kicking it around. It's a great time to join. Use the discount code Salt Lake, Salt Lake. And on a one year membership, you'll get 20 bucks off your first year. I do have people sometimes saying, Jack, I don't want to sign up for a recurring membership. I, I don't want to do that, but I want to use PayPal. If you want to do that, it's really simple. Sign up for a recurring membership. Log into your PayPal account after you've joined and, and you've logged in and make sure your transaction went through. Look up the payment you just sent. Look up the subscription you created. It'll say right there, you know, the subscription number. Click on it. Click cancel subscription. That way you've only paid for one year and you won't auto renew and you can choose to renew or not when you're 
current account expires. So that's how that system works, and that's how you can have all the control that you want to have with it. So if recurring has been keeping you from signing up and you want to take advantage of the sale, there you go. Remember, this is one thing I want to say right now before I bring Frank on and go forward with this. People talk to me all the time about, well, PayPal this, PayPal that. Why do you use PayPal? I use PayPal, one, because I tell you not to have a credit card. And you don't need a credit card to have PayPal. You can use a bank account. You can do it however you want. A lot of people have income that goes into their PayPal account. So that's, you know, kind of a direct route there. The other reason I use PayPal, though, is people will say things like, well, can you charge my PayPal account and give me a membership? I cannot charge your PayPal account. Nobody anywhere in the world can charge against your PayPal account. PayPal can only be used by the buyer to send money. When you set up a subscription with PayPal, you're saying, I want to send money now and I want to send money at a regular frequency to this person and you're always in control. No one can just go out, like if I have a credit card number and a merchant account, I can just run a charge against your credit card. Can't be done with PayPal. Uh, they get some bad rap over the gun thing. PayPal's not anti-gun, folks. They're no more anti-gun than they are anti-cigarette or anti-alcohol. Can't buy those with PayPal either. With that, I got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I want to introduce at this time Frank Sharp, Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants. As I said before, Frank is one of my favorite guests to have on the Survival Podcast. He always brings us a stark dose of reality. That's one of the things I love about him. He also has a great school, a great training program, and he's recently had some great folks from TSP there. Hey, Frank, welcome back. Back to the Survival Podcast. Jack, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm glad to, again. I'm glad to have you here. Um, if for folks that maybe haven't heard your your previous uh, interviews, uh, they probably know you because you are the lead instructor and owner of Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, but you know, you want to give people just like the thirty second background resume on who you are for for new listeners. Oh, uh, absolutely. I. Uh worked, uh, or I was an apprentice for an instructor by the name of John Farnham. I actually still am. I work for his company, which is Defense Training International, uh, helping him with classes around the country. And that's kind of where I learned how to do all this stuff. Uh, I'm an NRA instructor, International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors, a bunch of you know organizations like that where I take continuing education and that sort of thing. Uh, pretty much, though, I've just been doing it for 10, 12 years now out on the range, and that's where I've gotten my experience. And uh, at this point, I'd like to think I know what I'm doing, but that's always up to the students to decide. Well, cool, man. Um, you actually just had a class that some of uh, some TSP listeners attended. you want to give us a little update? Yeah, that was, that was great. We uh, actually gave away two spots uh, on the last interview, and I, I believe the interview was posted, and it was an hour and one minute after it was posted because we gave away right at the end of the show. I'd already had calls and, and got the two spots taken. Uh, but met, uh, had a few other listeners end up signing up also. So we had quite, I think there were four or five people in the class that were listeners of yours and just all wonderful people. Um, again, I can't say enough good things about your audience. They're, uh, definitely quality. And, uh, we had a level one pistol course, which is just our way of saying our basic pistol course and, uh, amazing, uh, improvement by everybody there. It was just one of those courses, myself and my co-instructors, we all, we were at dinner at, on Sunday night after the class was done, just agreeing it was one of the best ones we ever did. Uh, just watching the, uh, progression of the students from the beginning to the end, they just made amazing, uh, leaps in their skills and everybody left happy. It was just really a great class. Yeah, I mean, the people that I heard back from that went there said that uh, a couple of them had never actually been to a training before, and they really thought they kind of had this stuff cold, but they uh, quickly, when faced with some training, realized what they didn't have down cold and said that they were actually amazed at how much progress they made in a single course. And they all worked hard. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, with the attitude of a person coming into a class. Uh, myself and my, my instructors from my school, we consider ourselves professional students. I try to take two, three classes a year at the basic level from other schools as much as I can. And, you know, you have to park your ego at the door and you have to say, I'm here to learn. And, you know, what I knew before that may be relevant in my life, but for this weekend it's not. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to listen to what this person has to say and I'm going to do it their way. And that, you know, when you open your mind up, you can progress and learn things. And a lot of us who, who take classes, uh, you know, we learned 95% of what we were going to learn about guns in our first class, and we're chasing that last 5% with every class we take. So every time I go take something, I learn something new. And I usually bring it back to my own students, and so do my other instructors. I, I love it when my instructors go take classes and come back and say, hey, look what I learned. And we're like, oh, great, we should incorporate that, or that's not going to work because of this reason or whatever. But um, 
you know, you can't you can't expand yourself and you can't get better without exposing yourself to new ideas. So having that proper attitude of going into it to learn, and and that's what I saw uh, two weekends ago. Just everybody was there to learn, and they were just soaking up the information, and they were they're putting huge effort into it, and that's when you get progress. Absolutely, and I think maybe you're going to maybe do this again for some folks with a rifle course coming up. Maybe we'll save exactly uh, yeah, what to do till the end. Maybe we'll talk about that later. All right, I'll try to try we'll to leave it to leave it to the end. Then I don't get inundated with calls when you first post this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, well, I'll bend Frank's arm a little bit toward the end here, folks. See if we can get you guys some more seats, uh, uh, gratte, so to speak. But uh, one of the things we were chatting about by email before today's show was uh, checking your equipment and some interesting things that popped up recently that you. Noticed something about a gun with uh, its sights? Oh, yeah. That uh, last weekend I had a, a, a private student that I was working with, and it was really amazing. We, <laughs> there, I, I should back up here. Um, a lot of times when we're out at the range and we're having students who are having problems making hits, they want to blame it on their equipment. Um, and that's no nothing to slight any of any students that I've had. That's just kind of human nature is that, you know, your, your last – thing that you think it could possibly be is your own self-control. It just has to be your equipment. And so we had one of one of these happening in a, in a class. And, you know, the student was really focused and really trying their best to make it. And so, as usual, as an instructor, usually what we'll, we'll do is we'll ask to borrow their gun and we'll make hits with it and show them that, you know, the sights are fine, the gun's fine. It's just, you know, your own trigger control is the problem here. Well, I shot the gun, and my co-instructor shot the gun, and we couldn't make hits with it either. And I kind of looked at him, and he looked at me, and we said, something's not right here. So upon further inspection, this gun had come from the factory with the front sight actually a little more than a 16th inch lower than the rear sight, and that was causing high hits. And so on, on targets close up, we were having no problem, but as we started moving back 20, 25 meters, you were shooting over the top of the target. And we're actually sending the gun back. It's a, it's a major manufacturer. It's a gun everybody's heard about. And we're not sure what caused this. If the wrong sites got in the wrong parts bin somewhere in the factory or what, but they're still addressing it. So when I get an answer, I'll let you know. But to the point of what you said originally, what started this, we need to get out on the range and try our equipment. Um, so many people buy guns and they put them up on the top shelf of their closet and it's this magic amulet that's going to ward off evil and they haven't taken it out and run it through its bases yet. Uh, we need to know if it's going to run our defensive ammo. We need to know if it's going to work at all, if it's going to work when it gets hot, if the gun's going to, you know, function as advertised with the sights that are on it and all the parts. So we had one of these rare occasions where the sights were bad on a gun, and, uh, you know, that's something that uh, I, I don't see very often. That's actually the first time I've seen it out on the range. But, yeah, we could blame her missed shots to uh, bad sights. I bet she finally felt vindicated, too. She's like, man, I knew it wasn't me. Because I've dealt with that with teaching people, too. Yeah, it's the gun. It's the gun, and you pick it up, and you ten-ring it for them, and then they're like, oh, well, maybe it's not the gun. But I've seen things like that. I've seen a lot of things like that. You mentioned the further you get away, the, the more magnified the error becomes. I've seen that with people zeroing rifles at 25 meters and never shooting it at 100 meters and then shooting it over, not a tactical situation, but shooting it over the back of a deer and because they're maybe not that great a shot, and they had maybe a two-inch group at 25 yards, they didn't even notice that maybe they were a bit high. And that high uh, becomes a, a magnified high out into the distance. And, and, you know, they're shooting, you know, eight inches, nine inches high at 100 yards because they've never actually put the weapon through its paces at its intended ranges. And I think that's a huge mistake. Oh, absolutely. And we, uh, along with that, and I mentioned this, I believe, in the first interview I did with you, is uh, one of my mentors and an instructor we have out in Virginia who goes by the nickname of Doc Gunn has a, uh, a, a, a play. he applies this to all your equipment, and he calls it the happy family. And each piece of gear has to work with every other piece of gear. And in the last pistol course, uh, we, some of your listeners were learning that, too, that the holster they bought didn't necessarily work with the gun they brought or the holster didn't work with the pants they were wearing or the cover garment they were using or, you know, you start adding pieces onto your belt or into your ensemble, and we have to make sure that each piece works with every other piece. Yeah, I just experienced that. I had somebody send me a holster and uh, said, you know, try it out, say you like it. They made it for a 45, a 1911 frame, which is one of my primary carry weapons. And it was designed to be adjustable, so you could set it for as high or low as you wanted on your uh, your belt line. Well, the way they had it adjusted, to me, it didn't carry comfortably. It was too high. 
but I tried it on that way, and it worked fine, and it drew fine. Well, I dropped it down into some lower holes to lower the frame uh, so it would carry further be- you know, below the waistline and lower, and when I tried to draw the weapon, it was like, uh, it, was like it was locked in there like in a retention holster. It was absolutely impossible to one-hand draw uh, that holster, and you would think that nobody would ever do that, but, you know, I could have been wearing a different belt when I tried it, and it would have been fine, and then wearing a a thicker, heavier web belt, uh, maybe the belt was part of why it didn't draw well. I think that that is something you don't really think of until you have it happen, so I think you have to check things not just on this, like, mile-high view, but also every day if you're going to carry... When you put that weapon on, make sure you can draw it that day because you might, might, might be wearing the same thing you wore yesterday. Sure. And we have also, I, I guess, let me put it this way, an announcement I make at every class, is, and it's said tongue-in-cheek, but we actually mean it when we say it, is that I genuinely hope that every piece of gear, every gun, every accoutrement that anyone here brought, I hope that it fails. And I want it to happen on the range. I really do. I want guns to break. I want holsters to fall apart. I want flashlights not to work. I want everything to break because I want it to happen there and not when their life depends on it. And we need to get out there and work this stuff through and make sure that the bugs and the hiccups and figuring out which piece that we need to replace or get something different, we want to do it out on the range, not in the middle of our gunfight. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, on uh, gunfights, I guess, or the potential for them, um, we had kind of talked by email about something else that's going on right now that right now at least is somewhat peaceful but has a propensity to spiral down or something like it in the future could spiral down into riots. And we talked a lot about the London riots last time you were on. But what do you make of this Occupy Wall Street thing? Not so much the why behind it, but is there a potential for this to turn into something other than what it appears to be right now? No doubt about it. It appears to be we're our countries entering the phase that England, Greece, and a lot of the European countries were in three or four years ago, with the first peaceful protests, the first you know groups of people going out saying we're not happy for whatever reason. And as this goes on, as you see the economic turmoil you know happening, I I can't imagine that that's not going to be the potential of what we're seeing here. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm even more pessimistic than you. I look at this, and I've been calling these people useful idiots. Um, I see a larger hand at play here, a very uh, uh, leftist agenda, not even trying to make it political, but leftist even from you know, a, you know, a U.S. liberal perspective. And uh, I see that I actually think there are some people, not all people involved, but some of the people behind this actually want this to become riotous. That, that that's their goal. Very well could be. Uh, as far as your audience goes and, and the people listening, we're, you know, I, I'm not even choosing a side on it. I'm just saying this is a sign of the times and make sure that you're ready to stay home for a while. And, I mean, if you start looking at this thing, it was, it was they're calling it Occupy Wall Street, but now there's people in Washington, there's people in San Francisco. So this is getting coordinated in, 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 on a kind of a national level. I think that people look at London and go, well, if you're in England, you're not that far from London. Uh, where in the U.S., if it's in New York City and you're in Texas, whatever. But, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, we're seeing this kind of perk up in all major uh, U.S. cities uh, is what I see. Like the goal is basically to have one of these groups sitting in in every major U.S. city. Sure. And at what point does it start affecting commerce uh, to the point where UPS can't move or the planes aren't flying or the highways are shut? Who knows? Uh, and it may just be a localized thing. But, again, you know, be ready to stay home for a while. Make sure you've got your, you know, medications up to date and, you know, everything you need for a week or two or three or a month. Who knows? And, I mean, on that note, I mean, do you think that people that live in these cities that maybe think they're not really in the area still have a lot to worry about if this thing kind of escalates? Uh, uh, sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody needs to eat, and everybody eventually is going to need some sort of trauma care, and everybody's eventually going to need, you know, some sort of, you know, ambulance, police, you know, all that kind of stuff. It all starts getting affected. You know, there's, uh, you know, not to get too Reagan-like here, but there's a trickle-down with all that stuff. It, it will affect you eventually. And I think most of us, even even the preppers in your audience who have managed to get their retreat put together, still have friends and family who live in cities. You know, there's still going to be people in your life you care about who are in the middle of it. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm just I've been telling people if you live in any of these big cities, 
uh, have your bug out plan in place and be ready to go and have kind of like a secondary contingency to get other people to come with you uh, and know what you're going to do with them, even if they're not buying into it right now. Even if they're saying, ah, forget it, there's nothing to worry about. It's just a bunch of college kids down there. Um, I, I don't think people realize that it's it, the people that are even there right now I don't see as the big threat. I see them being like the tipping point. And once it starts, then the dregs of humanity come out and you know, start smashing things and go after, you know, London, they were all saying they're going after the rich people, uh, but the rich people were people like you and me, small business owners. Right. And we have to admit that the people who are protesting right now are the people who could afford to go. Uh, it's it's when you get, you know, the people who are truly, you know, upset and, and can't afford food or whatever that, you know, when they get mad, that's, that's when you're going to start seeing, you know, some more, angle to this, unless, of course, what you're saying with the agitation starts happening, and, and who knows, that it's all a possibility. All I know is there's a huge amount of unrest in everyone. Um, I've, I've noticed in the past year there's far less, um, I, I don't see people arguing in parking lots, I don't see people arguing with the clerk at the store, I don't see that kind of anger anymore, I see a general malaise about people anymore, they, they just can't plan for the future. And I see that it's just kind of permeating through everyone that I meet. There, there's a depression and an unhappiness in everyone because they're, they see no future. And they can't put their finger on it, and I can't really put my finger on it other than to say I think it really is economic. I think no one knows how to plan for the future right now. They can't put money away. They can't think about buying a house or a new car or putting their kid through college because everything is so uncertain. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think that... My concern with this kind of thing blowing up, and one of the more alarming things that I've seen is I've, I've seen a lot of people online uh, voicing tentative support for what's going on here, and I know the people, and I know their, their, their mindset toward liberty, and I'm thinking they're kind of backing someone that's completely the opposite of who they are, and it's because people have this malaise, as you're saying, that anybody that's in opposition to what is perceived as the problem must be somebody to side with, and that's why I'm actually really concerned that this thing grows roots and becomes a movement and then turns out really, really bad because it has the propensity just because, well, you know, the evil people on Wall Street, that's something that America is very likely to get behind now without thinking about what that really means. So that puts us all in a, in a position where um, you get into kind of an us-and-them mentality, and if you're not us, you're them. Right, right. And, you know, I, there's a old saying, I, I forget, someone wrote a college paper on it, but everything always comes back to Hitler, and it's because people always use that as an example. But, I mean, Hitler was anti-communist, so, you know, if you got on his side, you were against the communists. You know, I mean, it's that kind of thing where, well, maybe both sides are wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I've also I've been saying lately that you know the, that's the whole enemy of your enemy is your friend thing. But sometimes the enemy of your enemy isn't even your enemy's enemy. He's your enemy's friend, and the whole thing is set up to to lure you into one side or the other uh, where you're controllable. So I don't want to go too deep into the politics of this. I want to talk more about practical stuff we can do. But I, I thought it was interesting to have a you know kind of an open discussion between you and I and the way we're, we're seeing this thing. But um, I, I just, from your perspective, you know, from people solidifying themselves, being prepared to get out, being prepared to bug in, what have you, how bad do you think that that, that particular event could become and how quickly could it really blow up? Uh, again, I gave up predicting the future 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> it's, it could happen overnight, and it could take years. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, if you asked me if the dollar was still going to be solvent now and we would be, you know, have any type of economy at all, I would have been laughing. Um, so, you know, I've, I've learned to pace myself a little bit more with this stuff as, as I've grown older. But at this point, uh, economically, I've never seen this things this tumultuous and the potential for problems, uh, who knows what's going to light that fire. Uh, it's, it's going to happen, though. And Comparing it to, like, let's say we talked a lot about Rodney King's riots last time in L.A., if you get that kind of event going on in ten cities at the same time, what does that do to the nation as a whole? Uh, how about something a little even less uh, incredible than that? Uh, Gaddafi's regime is, you know, in its death throes right now, and I've heard everything reported from ten thousand to twenty thousand surface-to-air missiles have gone missing out of his armories. They found one in Mexico two weeks ago. 
So you tell me, one jet airliner gets shot down out of the air, what's that going to do? Yeah. yeah. That's going to shut down the airspace. That, I mean, that will be it. And, you know, our, our, the economy at this point is so fragile, I don't know how much it could take. So, I mean, what do you think people should be doing personally, like in their homes and their neighborhoods, as far as defense for this and preparation for, for this? Because, like, I, I think what you're saying, if I hear you right, is it's you can't tell me when. You can't tell me for how long. You can't tell me exactly what it's going to be like, but you're telling me something. We're, we're going to deal with something. And well, that's, that's a guess on my part also. But is your, the people in your audience and generally your philosophy from what I've been able to gather is that this is a lifestyle. This is how we live. This isn't like something that we're necessarily prepping for an event that we think is going to happen tomorrow. We're just always prepared. Correct. And that's the way I would start with this. Uh, you know, much like most of the people I know carry a pistol with them every day. Is it because they're anticipating a gunfight? No, not at all. It's probably the last thing on their mind, and they put their gun on like they do their watch and tuck their handkerchief into their pocket. It's just another thing they carry because they may need it. And yeah, there's that one email going around now that says, I don't carry a gun because I feel inadequate. I carry a gun because if I face three armed thugs without a gun, I am inadequate. Exactly. And if you knew you were going to a gunfight again, you'd take a rifle with. So, you know, we're, we're carrying pistols because it's a last-ditch piece of emergency equipment. And the key word there is emergency. You know, how often are we faced with emergencies? They're not daily. Not at all. And what we're seeing with the world right now, it's, it's cyclical. It's a typical thing that has happened over and over again with every society that has grown to the size of ours or Europe or, or whatever. Um, you know, it happened to the Romans. It happened to the Greeks. It, it's happened to every society that, that has, you know, attempted any type of uh, civil economic model like we have. And it's doomed. I mean, it eventually will be because, you know, we go back to the, the democracy wheel where at some point people learn how to vote themselves money out of the treasury. And that doesn't matter if it's, if you want to declare that welfare is the problem or military spending or banker bailouts or General Motors, whatever it is, you know, or politicians just skimming off the top. Eventually somebody figures out how to take more than what's coming in. And that, you know, it's simple math. Uh, here we are. Um, how long can you sustain that? No idea, but we've reached a point at which we have to be concerned as people who care about ourselves and our families, and that's where I'm at. Um, you're either going to keep looking forward ahead down the road, or you're going to put blinders on and just let it hit you. Yeah, and you know, you, you mentioned something interesting there, and it's kind of one of the subjects I really wanted to cover with you today was uh, shotguns and rifles for home defense. Um, I talk to a lot of people about, you know, guns. It's just a, it's a cool topic for me. Like any guy that's into the subject, you know, what do you got? What do you have? Hunting guns, defense weapons, whatever. And I, I'm always struck by the person that, you know, has the sniper rifle and, I'm, and, and talks about defense. And I, I can see some uses for that. But if you're sniping a guy at a 1,000 yards, it's probably not a self-defense situation uh, unless you're in a military unit and, and it's a coordinated type thing. But I do believe what you said is absolutely true. I carry a handgun when I am away from my home because it's not practical or legal for me to carry an AR or an 870. And if it were practical and legal, then I probably would because it's a much better tool. So when people say, well, what, what's your handgun for self-defense in the home? Uh, it's, it's not. It's, it, it's a shotgun or, or a carbine. And, and just kind of your thoughts on that and what makes a good home defense tool. In, in your case, that's probably right. Uh, in my case, if it were legal to carry a rifle, I probably still wouldn't be carrying a rifle uh, because I need both my hands to do most of my work. Well, no, hold on. I, I guess there's two things that are legal and practical. So right. Pra pra practical is, is the word. But I do yeah. keep a rifle in my vehicle. Um, you know, when I, when I travel and I'm in states where I can, that's, that's what I do. Um, since 9-11, I've really never traveled anywhere without a, a rifle. Um, I feel that's very important, and I, you know, I don't think you have to see too many Mumbai-style hotel attacks until you go, yeah, maybe I should be a little more heavily armed. Um, for home defense, uh, truth be told, I've gone in a circle with that. There are times when I keep a pistol. There are times when I keep an 870 or a Mossberg 500 there. And there's other times when I've kept a AR-15 sitting in the corner. Um, it, it's going to depend on a lot of factors. Uh, for your listeners, uh, the first thing is, where, where do you live? Are you in an apartment? Are you in a house? Do you have brick walls in your house? Do you have drywall? 
Do you have bystanders in the house? Are there children in other rooms? Uh, is this a gun that you have to operate as well as your wife and as well as your children? Uh, Masad Ayub calls it a pool gun. I think that's a good term where we have a single gun that's used for home defense that every member of the family is trained on. Um, in, in that case, maybe the shotgun isn't the best choice. Uh, when you have smaller statured uh, females and children in the house, um, shotguns are heavy. They take two hands to operate. They may not be the best choice. Um, the, the positives of the shotgun are they're extremely powerful. Uh, without special permit from the feds, it's probably the most lethal weapon we can own is a 12-gauge shotgun firing buckshot or deer slugs. Um, it's intimidating. Um, most uh, police officers that I've talked to, the old guard who used to carry the shotguns in the car, will tell you I pointed a lot of pistols at people and I didn't get much response. When I pointed a shotgun at them, they usually complied. You know, yeah, it, it does have an intimidation factor to it, and and the pose that you take holding a shotgun, which is hard to do over the radio here, but um, there's nothing else that people do that is that pose. You know, yeah. holding holding a pistol in your hand, you could be holding your cell phone, you could be holding the radio. Nobody really knows, especially in a low light condition. But the silhouette of somebody holding a shotgun, they're holding a shotgun. Correct. It's, it's pretty obvious. Um, and you know, you talk about the lethality there, Frank. I remember stories of World War One when they started using the uh, the trench gun. The trench gun, yeah. Right, and it, our soldiers that had them, if they their trench was overrun and they knew they were going to be captured and taken prisoner, they threw their freaking shotgun away and like grabbed a rifle from a dead guy so that when they were taken prisoner and held up a rifle over their head, they weren't holding a shotgun because if you were caught with a shotgun, the carnage was so hostile that you were probably shot before you were taken prisoner because that's how hated the shotgun was in trench warfare. So there's there's a reason behind that lethality. It, it is. Um it's an ounce of lead either way that you're dumping into somebody. And with buckshot, you're talking about nine pellets, you know, in double-out buck, and you're causing nine temporary and permanent wound channels all next to each other. In the torso, generally, that's not survivable. People have survived it, but it's generally not survivable. Uh, with pistol bullets, um, totally different issue. Um, you know, if you shot somebody nine times in that same area, yes, we might get the same effect, but we usually don't get that, that opportunity. Um, as far as, uh, you know, the bad sides of the shotgun, again, it's heavy. It requires both hands to operate, and you're limited on ammunition. You know, you're talking probably, um, you know, some places you're limited to five shots, some places three if you're going to, you know, convert your hunting shotgun to use in the bedroom and it's off time. Uh, maybe you get seven, nine in some shotguns. And what are your thoughts that ammo goes fast. on the weight and size issue and, and dropping from a 12 to a 20? A 20 gauge 870 frame is a lot lighter. 20 is uh, okay, but with, we, we have a problem with the buckshot then. Um, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think the I use, side, well, go ahead. number four buck, um, is, 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 is damn lethal in a 20 gauge. It is, um, and let me prefix this by saying, you know, anytime I talk about calibers or, or ammunition, I want to say first to everyone listening, I don't want to be shot with any of it, including a BB gun. Um, but we do have enough documentation now with police departments that we're trying to use number four buck that it's not the fight stopper double out is. Um, it's, it's okay. It's going to be better than shooting somebody with a pistol, but it's not... You know, your your enemy doesn't explode into a shower of sparks with this stuff. Sure. Um, and with the 20 gauge, uh, I think number two is about the most common buckshot that we can get for it because the larger pellets won't fit squarely into the the 12 gauge shell. Correct. Right. You know, we have a problem trying to pack it in there. Um, so you know, you're you're starting to reduce your ammunition lethality at that point, and and everything's a trade off. We've got to sure. figure out what's going to work in our lives. Now you can have nine nine thirty three caliber uh, t double lot slugs from a twelve gauge. Uh, you do get about twenty seven uh, twenty four caliber projectiles out of a mm -hmm. twenty gauge three inch magnum, and right. to me, that's why I've always seen it, especially at home defense ranges, as adequate. Right, right. Uh, number four. Buck um, in a 12 gauge, I think, is like 27 pellets or something like that. The uh, the 20 gauge itself, um, I have a, a Mossberg 20 gauge that I have set up with a youth model stock on it, and it's for females to you know start learning how to shoot 12 or shotguns. I personally find it the most uncomfortable gun I've ever shot in my life. It pounds me. 
and it's lightweight because the Mossbergs have the aluminum receivers on them and all that, and all the recoil just goes right into your shoulder. It is not an easier gun to shoot by any means. Um, and that's something your listeners, if you're gonna, if you think you're gonna get a 20 gauge because it has less recoil, well, shoot the thing first. You know, do some comparison shooting and figure out if it's really for you or not. I think a lot of that is the stock length, though, because it, it screws up the the the, uh, the geometry of the length it, yeah. of pull and the way that the, the form is taken. And if you take that gun and put a full length stock on it, it's not as short anymore. But I think it would be a lot more comfortable to shoot. Right, but they can't hold it up anymore. They can't hold they, it up. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, we have to. We have to, you know, again, everything's this trade-off. And with most of our smaller statured shooters, we've got to cut that stock off. We almost need to take four inches off most shotgun stocks for most females to be able to operate them comfortably. Wow. At least, you know, run the slide and have a length of pull they can use. Yeah. Um, as far as carbines go, um, I think we talked about this in a, in a past interview. The uh, the 5.56 round is actually a pretty good home defense round as far as non-penetration through walls. Uh, we see a lot of SWAT teams going to it instead of 9mm now. 9mm, um, even uh, hollow points, when it was hitting drywall, the hollow point was just filling up with drywall dust, and it was acting just like a ball round, and it was going through multiple rooms. And the 223 5.56 round ends up you know, breaking up or stopping. Um, we, we see it as far less of a penetration problem indoors. Yeah, box- I, know, I know that's surprising because it's a rifle. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, I was very skeptical about that. When I first started doing the show, uh, I actually advised people against the 5.56 for home defense because of the fear of that. But I looked at a lot of the stuff that Box of Truth has done with it. Mm-hmm. And the, when you when you just take it out and you shoot it at drywall and you compare the results, uh, it's very clear that there's actually less of an over-penetration problem uh, because that round is so high velocity and it upsets and just, it fragments so easily um, that it's just you get a better result out of it. Right, and we also find that it does terrible on car doors. Um, you know, I just I see very few of them go through car doors. Um, but then again, I see very few pistol rounds that will go through car doors either. Um, you know, home defense stuff, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a case-by-case basis. It's going to be, you know, what the person can handle, what they can deal with. Um, when we get into long guns, whether it's shotguns or rifles, uh, we're talking about lighting issues now. You know, how are we going to light up our target? You know, if this happens at 2 a.m. or in the middle of the night, are we actually going to turn our lights on and ruin our night vision and go out into the unknown and, and look for this thing? Or are we going to camp out and, and wait for them? Do we have to rescue our children? Uh, at some point, we're probably going to need a flashlight. So when we start mounting lights on weapons, um, I'm a fan of having a light on my long guns. But I also have to caution everybody, you start using your gun as a flashlight. And, you know, that's... That creates some serious muzzle problems when you have other family members in the house. You know, is that you, Junior, and you're pointing your gun at them? Um, so you have to have to think about that too. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And it's it's you know a mixed bag. If you you go to a long gun, you you can't you know have the 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 flashlight in the other hand because you need two hands to run the weapon. So there, there's always that. What I've personally noticed though in most stories that are successful home defense stories where somebody broke in and the bad guy got shot and the homeowner didn't get hurt is are the homeowners and you know a lot of times they're older ladies and things like that they take up a defensive position and they wait mm-hmm. um, they don't go through their house and that gives them a tactical advantage i remember one you know i just felt so bad for the guy because he was shot through the stomach and into the spine with a 357, and he survived, but he ended up in a wheelchair for the rest of his life because he broke into the wrong 68-year-old lady's uh, house. Uh, uh, I'm being sarcastic, Frank. (laughs) She she hit him twice with a 357 in the guts and one severed his spinal cord, or didn't sever it, but damaged it uh, to where he couldn't walk. If it severed, he probably would have died. But he was in this wheelchair in this documentary going, that old lady just wanted to kill somebody, and I'm thinking... Uh, you probably shouldn't have broken her house, but it also made me realize that that is probably uh, the best case scenario. But I think there's also times when you have to go looking because it's easy to say, I'll wait it out, but what if you're on one side of the house, your kids are in another side of the house? Right. Uh, that's that's the eternal question. Um, I have no answer for this other than run to them as fast as you can. The idea of clearing your house by yourself, you know, working the corners and doing all that sort of thing, uh, first of all, doing it yourself is, is an effort in futility because you can't watch your back. Uh, two people doing it uh, correctly, hours. 
hours and hours to, to clear everything correctly to, to make sure you're not leaving any space unchecked as you as you pass through it. Uh, we don't have that kind of time when our when our kids are in the house. Um, it's it's not a good situation. Um, I have some. We we have a, a, a small class that we teach on that for home defense. And we have a number of tricks and things, which I don't want to say out over the air in case any of the bad guys are listening, but we give families things to work with on that. There, there are some answers. They're not good answers, but they're answers. Yeah, one of the things I'm a big fan of is dogs um, for that very reason. And not necessarily the Rin Tin Tin attack dog, but you could have a person take up a spot in your home, and like you're saying, to clear the house could take hours before you would know. But I don't see many people pulling that over on a dog. If there's a stranger in a house... They've got the nose and they got the ears and they're going to know it. And sure. uh, most dogs, when there's a stranger in the house, no matter how nice a dog they are, they get really, really freaking upset. So I've always considered our dogs, while you know, even my, I have a huge German Shepherd, but he's not a trained attack dog anyway. But I've always considered them a, a, an integrated portion of our security in our home. Absolutely, and it's an alarm system. You know, that's what it is. It's another layer of defense. Uh, it, they're great. I'm a big fan of dogs. I think anybody who can have a dog in the house, that's a good thing to have. It's going to bark and it's going to alert you to problems. We have a sign up out uh, on the edge of our property, and we have a gate that blocks the road, and it's a silhouette of a German Shepherd, and it says, "I can make it to the gate in 2.3 seconds." Can you? Right. <laughs> and and it's true. So, I mean, that that's kind of one of the things I've always thought. And I even think the little yippy-yappy Pomeranians or whatever, as long as they let you know mm-hmm. something's going on. I think there's also a case in here where we start to have to look at, like, you know, threat levels. There's kind of the uh, the everyday threat level. There's always a threat out there. But, like, with some of these riots and stuff like that, I think people maybe need to have almost like a DEFCON system uh, when there is civil unrest going on about, you know, maybe certain things that day-to-day are okay, uh, as threat levels increase, they maybe need to have some procedures that they have plans for. Or the minute we think somebody's breached our security, there's a procedure. Uh, yeah, and, and the entire family has to be on the same page with that. Um, again, we come to uh, a lot of wishful thinking with this kind of stuff. Um I most of the stories I read, I mean, every once in a while we get the story of the little old lady who shoots somebody in, in the dark. Um, but generally these attacks, when they happen in the home, happen during broad daylight or during the day. And uh, one of the best ones is the idea of a safe room. We're going to have a safe room in our house, and that's where all, we're all going to go when this happens. Uh, when this happens at 2 in the afternoon and your wife's in the kitchen and you're out in the garage and the kids are in the backyard, how exactly are we going to get to that safe room and... How are we going to get alerted to this? Why don't we just ask the guy, hold on, you can do what you want while we go to our safe room, right? Right, exactly. Sorry, Mr. Bad Guy. As soon as we get our safe room, you can do do whatever you need to do. You know, the first layer of this, I'm going to say, whatever defensive tool you've chosen to use, you need to have it ready to deploy at all times. Um, So if you're going to rely on OC spray, pepper spray, then carry it on your person. If you're going to rely on a pistol, then have it on your person. During your waking hours, you should be armed and ready on your property. That's my first advice. Thanks for that, because I've had people tell me when I've said on the air that I carry at home. Uh, I carry, when I go home, I don't take my gun off. When I'm sitting around the house in the evening watching, you know, Big Bang Theory, uh, my gun's on me. And people say, you know, isn't that a little bit overkill? And I'm like, well, I don't really think so, because... I don't know that I'm going to have time to run in and grab the shotgun from out from, you know, under the bed or what have you uh, if somebody decides to come through the door. We've had two students over the past 10 years that I know of who have used their guns in their home to defend themselves during daylight hours, and they wouldn't have been able to do it if they weren't wearing their gun. Um, one of I'm not paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. It's, you know, no different than, again, wearing your watch or having a pen. You know, you may need to write. You may need to know what time it is. You may need to shoot someone. It's it's that simple. Um, in this case, uh, we had uh, two roommates who were students. This was about, uh, I want to say, eight, ten years ago in Michigan before they had a carry permit up there. And they were advised, carry your guns, you know, wherever you can legally. So uh, one of them took to carrying her gun in, in their home. And they were sitting on their back deck on a July afternoon, sunny, 80 degrees out. They had a three-year-old Rottweiler, as I'm remembering the story, uh, that for some reason just decided to attack the roommate. Um, 
got his teeth in on on her on her leg. Uh, when later at the hospital, they said her tooth was like within, that tooth was like within a millimeter of hitting her artery. Uh, the roommate, the other roommate, jumped up, drew her gun, and shot the dog. Saved her roommate's life. Um, you know, very bizarre happening. Um, I was never really filled in on totally on how how that occurred, but. You know, here we have an example of had she not been wearing her gun, the dog would have got its teeth in there and worked harder, and that would have been it. Um, the second, we have a student who was sitting on his couch on a, I think he was his day off during the week, and he was watching TV just sitting on his couch, and there had been a robbery in the neighborhood. Uh, the robbers careened into his front yard in a stolen car, ran up his front steps, and kicked his front door in as they're running from the cops, and he drew his gun and shot the first one as he came through the door. Um other than that, he would have been a hostage. Sure. Or dead. Sure. Um, second one ran off and it caught him down the block. But, you know, those are the two stories I know of of students that uh, we've had over the years that have used their guns while wearing them at home. I don't think people sometimes, I think sometimes people like overestimate the, uh, the, the likelihood that somebody that's out to steal from you isn't out to kill you as well. Um, I, a personal story here, my grandfather, when he was in his, he was probably close to 70 years old, he was working for my father uh, at his gas station, and a guy held him up, and fortunately, he held him up with a 25 automatic. And the old man was a 25-year military veteran, and he just wasn't going to be robbed. And so he kicks the guy, uh, and was unable to, to disarm him, but he kicks him, and he runs out of the, the office at the, at the station and goes to run around the back of the, the thing, and he falls. This guy runs up to him, points the gun at his head, pulls the trigger, and it misfires. Um, you would think at that point, okay, the guy would haul ass. No, he works the action and tries to do it again, and the old man managed to get his arm up. He was shot in the back of the arm. Uh, and if he'd been shot with a thirty eight, it probably would have penetrated and went into his head, but since it was a twenty five, it hit the bone, and he ended up actually, you know, years later when he died, he was buried with that slug still in him that decided it wasn't worth removing. Um, and I just think that that level of violence, I don't think that most people are really in touch with the fact that, you know, here's just a guy that was going to rob an old man for some money, uh, but as soon as his, his quest to do that um, failed, it became to kill him. That was his goal. It wasn't to get the money anymore. It was to kill the guy. Well, I, I've said it to you before. I don't make my defensive decisions on suspect intent. I make it on suspect capabilities. And he's walked up to me and pointed a gun at me and said, do this or I will. He's already intended or he's already spoken to me that he's willing to kill me. That's all I need to know. And that's kind of where I wanted to lead you in this. I think that people need to psychologically deal with the point that at some point they might have to make the decision of when to and when not to pull the trigger. Uh, yeah, and again, I can't predict how anyone's next fight's going to be. Um, it's it's definitely something that people should sit down and have some introspective thought about. You need to know if you can do it, and you need to know if you're going to be willing to do it. Um, if, if you're coming at it from a Hollywood aspect or an Internet commando aspect, you know, you're kidding yourself. If you've really sat down and thought about it and figured out what's important and what's not and what the consequences of it are and if you can live with it or you can't live with it, um, I, I'm the first one to say guns aren't for everybody, and I'm the first one to say that not everyone is capable of doing this, um, but most of us actually are. If we sit down and we're honest about it, we can condition ourselves to be able to do this when, when the time comes. I saw a great article years ago by a guy you've mentioned uh, today, and you've mentioned him several times, Masad Ayub, um, that talked about having in place an after-shooting um, plan. Basically, that just because somebody broke in your house and, and you did what, what you know we would all look at and go as a good defensive shoot, doesn't necessarily mean that responding law enforcement is going to see it that way. And it, I can't remember where I read the article. I don't know if it was in Backwoods Home or on his blog, but it was... Things like, you know, which, so when, you know, mom's trying to get dad out of the clink, who to call, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on something like that? Is that something you advise I, to do? I couldn't uh, agree with him more, and I couldn't give him enough accolades for putting all that together, and I make nothing from this, but Mass is someone I consider a mentor, and I have, he, he presents a class uh, for those in the Chicagoland area that's in, I believe, Aurora, Illinois, usually over the winter, July, August, or July, I'm sorry, I'm saying winter, July, uh, January, March, that area. Um, it's a two-day legal course where you sit in a hotel meeting room and for 12 hours a day he explains to you how to navigate the legal system. 
the best $400 I ever spent on anything gun-related, and I've taken it three times. Uh, yeah. I would highly recommend that for everybody. If you can sit down with Ayub and get run through that class, you will look at the world different. And what I really thought was awesome about the way he was putting this together wasn't it was it wasn't just for your knowledge it was documenting it so when you're sitting in in the clink uh, because you're in the wrong county when you do this or whatever because I mean to me somebody breaks in your house and I'm the responding law enforcement officer broke in your house you shot him let us clean this up for you sir uh, thank you for helping us out but that's not the reality all no the reality is the state looks at it as a citizen's been murdered. You know, it doesn't matter if that citizen broke into anybody's house. You know, the police, when they get there, they're not, their job isn't to be judge and jury. Their job is to take a report and to treat it as a murder scene. And what Mass will tell you is that if you are prosecuted for this, um, it's, it's what's called an affirmative defense. Uh, most of the time when the state comes after you for whatever, it's the burden of proof is on the state. The prosecutor has to prove you did whatever. Well, in this case, you're already admitting you did it. Yeah, I shot him, but. It was for this reason. So it's an affirmative defense. You have to prove that what you did was justified. Versus pr- them proving you did it because you called the police and said, hey, he's dead, come get him. Well, you are, you, you're going to admit you shot him. Sure. I mean, you know, it's not like you're going to stand there and say, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, I did it. I defended myself. So it's an affirmative defense, and that puts the burden of proof on you, and it's a totally different legal situation. You know, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not here to give everybody that advice, but it's um, it's something you want to check into and understand what you're getting into. I've, I've been trying to get Moss on the show, and if I do, I think that might be the first. Oh, he's a much better interview talking. than I am. I don't know about that. Man. <laughs> he's great. Um, yeah, I've I've learned so much from him over the years, and I plan on learning more. And I consider him a friend and a mentor, and he's he's wonderful. Well, um, as we're wrapping up here, we, we did talk quite a bit about civil unrest and the potential for it, and I think you and I both feel that it's likely, if, even if we don't say it's, it's not if but when, we, we both feel it's, it's a likely event to eventually occur. What are some some advice you can give to people? I just had uh, Carl Denninger on, and when I asked him what people should do to prepare for this, he basically said change the system. Uh, and he didn't have a real good answer, and I don't expect him to because he's an economist and a commodities trader. I'm um, very switched on in that world, but as a prepper, you know, I mean, that's just not his world. Uh, you, on the other hand, are all about making sure that we provide the best defense we can for ourselves. So, you know, asking you in your own neighborhood, what are some things you could do? Because I don't think that if this stuff really blows up, uh, people can plan to stand by themselves. Well, without getting into the food prep and medical and all that sort of stuff, the first thing I would say is get a rifle and get trained on it. That's that's it. Um, the rifle itself, whether we have civil unrest or not, I believe it was Jeff Cooper who said, uh, you know, the rifle is what makes you a citizen. And when you pick one up, that's how you feel. Um, you're no longer a slave. You're not an underling. You're not, you know, an unfree person. Um, so the rifle is is really what maintains liberty in this country, and the fact that we have an armed populace and people who are trained with rifles, that, to me, is probably one of the number one things every able-bodied person should do. Uh, so on that line, uh, if you don't have a rifle yet, get it and learn how to use it. Okay, and actually you're going to talk a little bit about you have a class on that don't you oh yeah it doesn't sound like i'm trying to plug myself now okay uh, <laughs> no he's not trying to plug uh, himself, folks. Yeah. set him up yeah well and, and how ironic uh, at the end of october here on the 29th and 30th uh which is halloween weekend i think halloween's on the monday uh, in rochester indiana we're going to be doing our level one rifle course so if you've never shot your rifle or you don't have any skill with it that's fine come on out anyway but we're going to give two spots away for that to your listeners so uh, the first people who call me after this show uh, will get uh, get their spots. Where, the way we did this last time is I had uh, the people who called send me a $75 deposit, which they got back at the class when they showed up, so that was going to hold their spot for them. Sure, because uh, you're holding a C. Right. And it's a two-day course. Uh, we're going to do a night shoot. Um, it's all described on our website and that sort of thing. Of If anybody has any questions, feel free to go ahead and email me or whatever. But it's info at fortressdefense.com would be our uh, email address, and our phone number is 708-522-8060. And to win, people got to call you, right? Don't go emailing Franco and did I win. you got to call them if you want. Yeah, I mean, you'll, it'll be gone by the time I get to the emails. Sure. So, you know, call me and, and get it. I, like I said, I think it was a minute after the people had listened to the show that they were gone the last time, so... 
<laughs> but we'd love to have your listeners out and great people and uh you know it'll be uh rifles so we're going to learn transition to handgun also so you'll have to bring a handgun with um but we can give you all those details when we talk to you well real quick i mean on your rifle course what type of rifle does the person get I mean, ars a- i prefer a- any type of semi-automatic what we call a battle rifle uh, meaning it's designed for military purposes. It's a military-type rifle, um, which means it's going to be able to get hot. That's the biggest issue. Um, when we have guns like lever-action rifles come into our classes, they can't stand the heat. After about 20 shots of rapid fire, they're going to seize up. You know, when they cool off, they run again, but it's just not practical for real, real serious purposes. So your AR-15, your Mini-14, um, the the Sig 556 FALs 30 carbines um, even M1 Garands uh, and anything that's designed for for heat and high volumes of fire. Okay. Um, and you mentioned transitioning to handgun, so I guess that's whatever the person carries. I mean, that's yeah, you know, revolver, pistol. We don't, you know, it, it's fine. Uh, you bring it, we'll we'll train you on it. Um, I've had classes over the years uh, where. We go into an area and we have people who want to learn how to do this with their 22 rifles or their bolt-action rifles, and we'll set up a class for people and do that. Um, this particular class, though, we prefer something magazine-fed, semi-automatic. Okay. So leave your SKs at home, folks. You can uh, the SKS is fine. That's actually okay. If you want to load from stripper clips, all okay. time, that's cool, too. Because um, that, that gun's designed to get hot. It, it is. And, and it will function. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, I've had the surplus models where you run them at the range until you know all that cosmoline they were soaked in is just pouring out onto your hand. And they keep running, <laughs> and and it's hot too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's like an oil burn. smoke off of the barrel, and yeah, sure. it, it's it's a good gun. It's happy, yeah, and but it's a AKs are fine. Um, you know, for people with the budgets, you can start getting into the styrogs and that sort of thing, but those they cost too much for me. Um, but. As long as it's designed for some sort of military purpose and to get hot, we're usually good on that. So, I, I cool, folks. So, Frank, you want to give that number out one more time here as we wrap yeah. up today? 708 Okay. All right, folks, and I'll tell you this. This is airing Friday, uh, the, the 7th. So if you... Uh, are listening to this on Saturday the 8th or later, don't even bother unless you just want to attend the course, which I'm sure you'd be happy to have. As and the regular, co- the regular cost for it is 250 so everybody knows. Okay, cool. So two people get to go for free, and uh, give it a shot, guys. Hey, Frank, thanks for joining us again. As always, you are a stark dose of reality with, uh, with no Hollywood fluff. Oh, thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. And I mean that in the most positive way. I just realized that could have sounded a little bit off. You're a great interview. I just mean that you don't bring any of the... the I'm not the Lindsay Lohan of the gun community. (laughs) You're not blinging out with the Glocks, man. Um, But uh, as always, you are are a a great friend of the community, a great sponsor, and uh, we always gain a lot of wisdom from you when you're on the show. Appreciate it, Jack. All right, folks, with that, today this has been Jack Spirico along with Frank Sharp Jr. helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay Cause nobody up there cares they're living for today
appreciate you.